Welcome to Success in Medicine. I'm Dr. Samir Desai. In our last episode of the Success in Medicine podcast, I had a chance to talk with Sholi Nicholson. Sholi recently received some great news. He got into Harvard Medical School. He will be starting as a medical student in just a few short weeks. I brought Sholi onto the podcast because he has a deep interest in helping others achieve academic success in college. In part one of our two-part podcast series with Sholi, Sholi talked about how he set a goal to achieve all A's in high school and how that goal proved to be elusive. Until, of course, he took a good look at what he was doing. He didn't just stop there. He also took a look at what the best students were doing, and he wasn't afraid to ask these students questions. And the answers he received helped him to constantly refine his own strategies and practices. Through that analysis, he learned a lot about the factors that were preventing him from reaching his goals. And he then implemented some changes that brought him closer and closer to his goals. And in this episode, we will take up where we left off. You'll see how Sholi continued in his quest to achieve all A's. You'll learn about the three P's and why they're important for achieving all A's. The three P's stand for presence, presentation, and participation. You'll also understand why getting to know your professors is so important for your academic success and how doing so made a difference in Sholi's life. You'll learn how Sholi studies for difficult science classes, and he'll also share some important exam mistakes and how to avoid them. As with the first episode, you'll be left with actionable advice, advice that you can implement in your own life. So here's part two of our podcast with Sholi Nicholson. And then there are other things as well that you can do to earn better grades. And, and these are things that you can do in class. And, and these are also, I think, things that people don't appreciate as much. And you call these the three Ps. So can you tell us what the three Ps are? Yes. So the three Ps to an easy A in class. The emphasis, you know, I use three Ps because there are three P words that are really important to this, but the emphasis actually isn't on the three P's or on the EZA component. The emphasis really goes on the in-class component. You know, we talk a lot about study strategies and time management and planning to really give us the best chance of scoring a high GPA, but there are also things that we can do in class. So for the 60 minutes that we're in lecture or the 55 minutes or an hour and a half that also contribute to our having a strong scoring well in a class. And what those three P's are, the first one is presence. So frankly, I'm gonna say in college in particular, if you're a student that shows up to all your classes, you are already winning half the battle. And students will find that, you know, a lot of, pe- a lot of students might be pre-med, but have interest elsewhere. And eventually their attendance starts to falter to their classes. Or other times the semester would get very difficult and become busy and stressed and classes that lecture takes less of a priority you know it it, there is an advanced strategy when you skip lecture to do work and you weigh the risks and benefits of that but the fundamental is to make it to every class and to be present in every class and the reason why that's important is one like i mentioned it separates yourself from being in attendance and teachers notice when students are present in class whether it's consciously or subconsciously and also, 
Lecture is a time where you have an additional exposure to the material. Learning is a repetitive process over the course of time in reviewing the information and the material. So lecture is one step in that process. And that's, it's crucial because you also get the primary source of information, if you will, from the professor and the things that they say and what they want you to take away from the course in that lecture in particular. Also presence, another component of presence in addition to attendance and getting the material is attention. So to be present in lecture. Things go into our memory that we pay attention to. You know, if we don't pay attention to someone who says something, we won't receive that stimulus and it won't stick in, it won't have the opportunity to go into our, either our short-term or our long-term memory. And that's why it's important to put our phone on silent in lecture and sit somewhere where we are away from distractions. And to also, you know, have a healthy breakfast to where we have the energy and the glucose available for us because our brain uses a lot of energy while we think to have those energy reserves ready so while we sit and we focus and we think that those things stick with us and we, we, have, we can pay attention in lecture. Sit near, the, sit somewhere, don't sit all the way in the back, sit somewhere where you can hear what the professor is saying as well. All those things kind of combine to make the first P of getting an ETA in class, which is presence. The next P that I found was really important is presentation. So I, I touched a little bit on this earlier in my high school chemistry course, but how we present ourselves in class, outside of class as well, but in particular inside of class, impacts how our teacher sees us, how our classmates see us, and ultimately how we, our outcome of our grade in our class. You know, it isn't a very direct connection between our final grade and what we wear to class, but there is a subtle one. And for me, it was really important to make sure I didn't go to class in a wrinkled t-shirt and pajama pants. Sometimes my shirt was wrinkled. You know, I wasn't great at ironing and staying on top of my dry cleaning, but I tried my best to make sure I actually stuck to the dress code uh, in high school, the dress code we had to wear a shirt and tie. And I tried to stick to that as much as I could. You know, I had the freshman or sophomore year fashion of jeans and the top button unbuttoned and a tie to go with it. And But <laughs> it's kind of embarrassing now that I think back on it. But it was, you know, I did value the presentation. And what comes with that, what comes with being presentable in class is you'll start to see, at least in my experience, I started to notice that my teacher would call on me to answer a question or call on me because they're curious about what, how I felt about the reading. Or even when I met with them, they would make a comment, you know, if I was sick a particular day and just got up late and rushed to class and make a comment, oh, you know, no tie today, huh, or something like that. And, you know, it's not, it's really not about what you wear. It's not about how expensive the clothes are. And I hope no one takes that away from what I'm trying to say. It's about how you present yourself. And what I argue is students should, should treat class like a really important meeting. So be on time and be attentive and, and present themselves well because it has nothing but positive impacts on your final grade and, and how also on how you see your own academics. So that's the second P for presentation. And the third P, which is just as important as the other two, I, I believe, is participation. And for one, which is a recurring theme in all these P's, is how you're seen and how you start to feel about your academics. So when you participate, you know, you're seen as someone who's engaged, as someone who really wants to learn the material thoroughly, and as someone who really cares about the course and also cares about how they do in the course. And the rule that I have for participating is 
I always wanted to do one of three things. I either in every class I wanted to at least make a comment or ask a question or answer a question. And that could be, you know, it didn't have to be every math class at 12 p.m. on the dot. You know, it could be before class. I could approach my teacher or approach a friend and ask them a question I had about the assignment or the upcoming assignment or something in the past. Or after class, I could do the same thing. Or during class, I could answer a question or ask one. And this is important for a few reasons. And one of the most important reasons is that when you participate, you know, things stick in your memory more for the long term. Because when, when we associate more stimuli to something, it's easier for us to remember, even if we don't try. And I have memories today of times when I was in, you know, lecture for a general chemistry course with 200 other students. And the teacher asked, are there any other questions? And I asked the question, and I don't remember the question now, but I remember how nervous I was. And I also remember how much work I put into staying focused in class to be able to ask that question because I didn't want to make a fool of myself. You know, participating makes students focused and listen to what the professor is saying, listen to what questions are already being asked so that they don't embarrass themselves and ask something that is actually pertinent to what's being taught as well. So those are the three P's. And I want to talk about a different P, a P that is a big problem for so many students. And that P is for procrastination. And Sholi, I want to ask you, what recommendations do you have for students battling this major issue? So I'll be honest, Dr. Desai, you know, as much as I have, you know, helpful tips to overcome procrastination, it's something that I'm always continuing to try and improve and avoid at the same time. But a few things that I did that I've learned to do in my experiences, one, one of the biggest things I do to avoid procrastination is just to stop trusting myself. And I found that a lot of times my procrastination comes from when I see a task, when I think of a task much bigger than what it actually is. You know, I see a task as a mountain when it is just an anthill. It comes from what I attribute to a particular task. So if you want to speak specifically, I can think about writing a research paper. And papers are notorious for causing students to procrastinate because there are so many steps to them. You know, particularly a long research paper, not only did I have to write the 10 pages or the 8 pages, I had to write them well if I wanted to get a great grade and also do the research properly and find the books and create a thesis and put the ideas together in a way that was really unique. And all those things was just, when I didn't think in detail about them, was just a huge cloud over my head that made me not want to get up and get started. So I just stopped trusting myself in how I saw tasks. I always told myself, and I start, I do this now as well, and I continue to try and work on this, is, is you know, surely the way you think about this task that you have to do is not really how you do it, how it's going to work out. You know, it's going to take much less time than you think it will, much less energy, and it won't be as difficult as you think it's going to be. So just get started. The next thing that I do to help with my procrastination is um, I start to break down tasks into smaller bite-sized bits, if you will. So uh, back to the example of the research paper, um, you know, so I'll start with one, just looking at the prompt. I'm going to take 15 minutes and read the prompt and think about it and think about what readings could fit in this prompt and what, what ideas and comments have I heard 
in the past that kind of can interestingly fit in this paper prompt. And the next step will be, okay, I'm going to make a list of books that I want to check out and do my research. And I'm going to take this afternoon, take an hour this afternoon, head to the library and just check these books out. The next step is to start doing my research. You know, on Saturday, I have a good four hours um, after brunch that are free. So I'm going to spend those four hours sitting in the library and just skimming through these books and trying to formulate a thesis and find things that work together. And when we do things this way, um, it's just easier to move forward in finishing the, the final task. But uh, the downside is that you have to start in advance. Um, another thing that's, that's pretty helpful, a friend of mine does, is something called the Pomodoro Technique. And my, my, this friend in particular, we went to high school together at uh, Exeter, and he actually graduated Cornell, and now he works, he's an investment banker, and he works at Goldman Sachs. And um, I remember in high school, he would, any free time that he had, he would always be uh, doing something productive whether it was reading 10 pages in a book or checking, reading, editing a paper or finishing a homework assignment. For me, I, I like to work in big time blocks um, so that I can relax and take my time on things, but he was very efficient and that's what the Pomodoro, the Pomodoro technique is essentially, is using short time blocks, so using 20 minute time blocks and saying I'm just gonna not think about it, I'm just gonna focus and work for 20 minutes and after those 20 minutes, I'm going to take a five-minute break, and then I'm going to do it again. And you just do it over and over again, and you find that with time, it's easy to get started this way, and you're very productive, and eventually you make steps forward in getting the ultimate uh, project finished. And I guess the fourth thing, so we have don't, I don't trust myself. I break down the task into smaller bits. Um, other people use the Pomodoro technique. And another thing that um, I found is to avoid perfectionism. And for me, especially when I really wanted to get straight A's, I found that me wanting to do something perfectly stopped me from getting started or made me waste a lot of time while I was doing that task. So I eventually learned and, and, and taught myself that it's better to do something that isn't perfect and edit it retrospectively or accept that it won't be perfect and to get it finished than to try and do it perfectly and not get it done at all. Earlier you talked about the people at Harvard and how wonderful so many of these people were. I want to talk a bit about your professors and you really made it a point to get to know your professors. Why did you feel that this was important and how did you go about establishing those relationships? So when it comes to my meeting with my professors, I think you know this is one of the most invaluable things I took away from my undergraduate experience. And I think there are two things in particular that come from meeting in my professors. And the first thing is what I call academic insurance. And in the same way that we have health insurance to minimize the cost of getting sick or getting injured in the same way we have car insurance of minimizing you know the amount we have to pay for damages when we get in an accident we also can have academic insurance that minimizes the damage of not performing optimally on an exam and what that academic insurance is is meeting with our professors so 
when you develop a relationship with your teacher or with your professor and they start to be able to put a name to your face and start to see you as someone who's genuinely interested in them and what they have to teach in the course, you know, you have long-term goals and you want to do well, that automatically gives you insurance against getting a really terrible grade. And although I don't have the exact statistics of what developing a relationship with your teacher will do to, you know, in terms of a lower bound of a grade, you know, arguably, if you do your best on every assignment and don't get above a B minus on your exams, but you still have a good relationship with your professor, there's a good likelihood that you even get a B in that class. You get above the score that you've earned on the exams. And especially if you are borderline between a B minus or a B or any other two grades. The other thing that I got the most out of, and the other reason why I started to value meeting with my professor is basically the learning that came with it. And I believe, frankly, that I learned more outside the classroom at Harvard than inside the classroom. And most of those experiences were with the professors that I sought out to meet with for 10 to 15 minutes. And, you know, I have a few stories in particular, but, you know, thinking back, I remember one professor, Dr. Asani, who's a Islamic studies professor. And I took a class with him on understanding Islam in contemporary society. And he was a phenomenal writer. He was well-published, is well-published. And I wanted to talk to him about writing. So I remember I went to his office hours one day. He welcomed me into his office, and I was first really impressed by the books. There were books all over. Bookshelves were packed with books. There were stacks of books. And what I noticed about these books were that was that they were all worn. So, you know, these weren't fresh books that he had just bought from Barnes and Nobles or that he was gifted and just sat on his bookshelf, that he had, he had actually gone through every single one of these books and studied them or did research in them. And, you know, the, the corners were crumpled. There were post-it notes on them, highlighted, you know, pen marks, ink marks, and rips. And so these books were worn. And he was very, very well read. And this is my first exposure to the amount of reading that other people do, and these professors in particular. And so I asked him, you know, Dr. Asani, you know, I have a lot of trouble with writing. I want to improve my writing. I want to get better at writing. Do you have any advice? And I still remember the first thing he said to me. He said that, oh, writing, writing is treacherous. And that moment I'll never forget because this is someone who had a lifetime of experience writing and had many more years to go and one of, one of the top writers in his field and had read so many books and written so many publications, but it was still treacherous to him. It was comforting for me to know that the difficulty I was having writing and other students might have writing is just part of the process and it's okay for writing to be difficult and you have to keep going with it as Professor Asani did. Professor Jafo, he taught various classes in African American studies and I took a class with him on Spike Lee films and Scorsese films in another class about the African American diaspora and this professor knew so much about a variety of different subjects from linguistics to literature to history and culture and any question I had asked or someone would ask in class he would have a really in-depth thesis answer to 
And I remember asking him one time, you know, Professor Jaysville, you clearly know so much about a variety of different things. Is there anything you don't know about? And he said physics. So, you know, that was humbling to, to see that someone that was so educated could still admit and, and know what they didn't know. Professor Lee, I took a class on Chinese stories. I was an East Asian studies major, so I took a lot of humanities courses in addition to pre-med classes, and Professor Lee was my professor for Chinese stories, and I remember meeting with him, and like Professor Asani, his room was filled with books, and I asked him, you know, what draws you to reading? You know, how did you get started in reading, and why is it so important to you? Professor Lee said that reading is my way of living an infinite number of lives, and as I read the stories of other people and the stories that other people have written, I live vicariously through them, and I experience their experiences, and I learn from those experiences. So those are just a few examples of things that you know I was really fortunate to learn with meeting with my professors, and that's why I think it's so important for academic insurance and just learning in general. Well, what I find remarkable, Sholi, about the conversations that you had with your Harvard professors is, you know, I'm sure you had times where you asked your organic chemistry professor about some particularly difficult organic chemistry topic, but it was more than just that. It was some important life lessons that you took, and your professors were wonderful to be so revealing to you about their own experiences, right? Yes. And I want to shift gears a bit and and talk about difficult courses, because pre-medical students on the path to becoming doctors will at some point find themselves in a very difficult course. Often it's a difficult science course. Maybe it's organic chemistry or biochemistry or, or something else. And on your website, you describe how to study effectively for what you call incredibly difficult science classes. I wonder if you can tell us more about the process that you describe. Sure. I would love to. I would love to share what I've learned from other students and what has worked for me so I had one experience my junior year of college, junior fall, this is a semester. You know, I knew I wanted to challenge myself. Yes, I wanted to get straight A's, but was I cut out for medicine? Do I have the skills? Am I going to be able to succeed in medical school and the rigors of, you know, the science classes that we're going to take then? So I wanted to challenge myself. In that fall semester, I took organic chemistry and Human physiology and anatomy is only offered in the fall, so I could either push it off to my senior year, not take it at all, or take it that year. And I really wanted to take that because I felt it was important for the MCAT, and also it's really interesting and important information to learn. So I just decided that I would take the, both these courses at the same time and almost treat it like medical school and see what I could do. So I did a lot of research on the best way to study for this semester in particular, and what I came up with, and it actually ended up really working out well because I got an A minus in both those classes, was what's called the repetition method. And the foundation of the repetition method, this is a method you want to use for your most difficult science classes. The foundation is that the, our minds learn things very well and things stick in our minds through repetition. If we figuratively, we could see our brain as a muscle and the more we exercise that muscle, the more we repeat a particular movement, that movement sticks into our muscle memory and we don't have to think about it and it comes naturally, that, that movement comes naturally. And same with thinking, you know, the more we think about a concept and work through a concept, 
whether it's resonance or you know electron molecular orbital theory or something like that the more we go through it and go over it and review it and work through it it starts to stick in our memory and it starts to become intuitive for us and i made the most of this principle to study effectively i guess another example of how our minds work through repetition is when our friends or colleagues or family members or even ourselves when we can repeat quotes from a movie or a TV show without even thinking about it, without trying to remember them. You know, I remember when I was doing research that a lot of my colleagues would watch, you know, the the top shows that were popular at the time and they would always have the quotes down and say them exactly like the characters would say them in the show. And that's from just hearing these quotes, watching the shows many times, being entertained by the show, and then just what they see sticks into their minds and they can repeat it. So I wanted to replicate this with my studies. I wanted to learn my studies and see things so many times that I could repeat it intuitively and with minimal effort. And so the repetition method is basically a four-pass method to repeatedly see the most important material for a class to the point where we can learn it in our long-term memory and recall it easily. So the first step of the repetition method is to study the material before class. So skim over the lecture slides and try and understand the concepts that are represented in those slides for lecture. Skim the course readings and if you have time, read them thoroughly or read the components that are really giving you trouble that you don't understand. If there are lecture notes, look over those. Basically, think about the material and process it before lecture. And then the second step or the second pass of the repetition method is to attend lecture. And again, you know, we have the three P's and one of the P's is presence and participation is another one. So, you know, make sure you're focused in lecture, make sure you're listening. That way, this is your second exposure to the material. And, you know, just from these two steps alone, you have seen the material two times more than many of your other classmates would have, the ones that didn't attend lecture because they surely didn't review the lecture material before skipping lecture as well. And then the third path of the repetition method is to watch the lecture video again if you have access to it, or listen to the recording of lecture, or if you don't have those things, make sure you record lecture yourself and listen to it, or look at the slides that have been annotated by your professor. Get the lecture material any way that you can and go through it thoroughly and take notes on the most important parts of it. So these notes are what I call core notes, and basically it's the core material that will be tested. And so everything you write in your notes, you want to make sure it fits, one of, it fits all three criteria which is one, it's going to be tested, two, you didn't know it, and three, it's not something you can figure out intuitively. So everything that fits those three criteria, you want to write down in your notebook. And by the time you do that for every lecture, you've seen the material three times or so, and you also have a compilation or a study guide, if you will, of the most important material that you need to know for the test. And so the fourth pass comes in when you look at these notes and you review them over and over when you have some time, maybe before bed, so it's fresh in your mind and you can 
kind of consolidated in your REM sleep or, you know, when you wake up, just skim it over and then go on with your day. There's an infinite amount of times where you can review these, the core notes that you took for your other lectures. And so if you use that study method, it does take a little bit amount of time, especially watching the lecture again and taking in-depth notes on it. But if you do use that method, you'll learn the material very, very well. And that's all supplementary to when you start your hardcore studying for the upcoming exam. I also want to talk to you about taking exams. And you've identified some very common exam mistakes. What are these mistakes and how can students avoid making them? In my experience, there are four exam mistakes that students commonly make or can make that prevent them from scoring really well on the exam. The first one is studying improperly. So in order for a student to study properly, a lot of times it's really easy to say, I'm going to study hard for this exam and just you know, start reading the textbook and taking a practice exam. But to study properly for an exam, it's important for students to know what's being tested. So what material is actually being tested? Which lectures? Is it the material in the textbook or is it just the lecture slides or is it the lab material going to be on the test as well? So knowing what's going to be tested, knowing how it's going to be tested, because if it's tested as multiple choice, you need to know the material to a different level than if it's tested as write-out answers. Particularly in a statistics course, you know, if something's tested multiple choice, it'll be a different type of studying and different type of test taking than if something is taken where you have to write out the equation entirely and for your t-test or your ANOVA. And so you have to know what is tested, know how it's going to be tested. Next, you need to know how can you learn the material in the best way and efficiently to be able to replicate the answers when it's tested. And you need to execute on that. And those four components are the first step, which is studying properly. The next exam mistake that a lot of students make is not studying comprehensively. So frankly, it's the mindset. So I think students need to see school like this. If they want to earn a perfect score, they have to learn everything perfectly. And although that's not 100% true, that's the mindset students should have when they're studying for an exam. So they have to make a comprehensive study schedule, a plan that incorporates everything that they need to know. So for a specific example, say the exam is on lectures one through eight, you know, for each lecture, starting at lecture one, students should review the lecture notes, go over their homework and redo the difficult problems, review their quizzes and look at where they got tripped up on those questions, redraw the important diagrams, potentially make flashcards, and then make sure they know all that material, then go to lecture two and do the same thing for lecture three and four, all the way to lecture eight. And preferably, they would be doing this before practice tests. The third exam mistake that are easy for students to make is to not study enough. And, you know, everyone knows about cramming and, you know, it goes hand in hand with procrastination and we won't start studying until the weekend before an exam. And that's actually ambitious to start on a Friday night for a Monday exam. And students can see that as they're doing something productive and they're setting themselves up for success. But for the most difficult classes, sometimes starting on Friday, does not give you enough time because maybe maximum you'll probably get 10 to 15 hours in over the weekend if you're ambitious. But, you know, studying a lot is actually studying maybe 
24 hours or 30 hours or even 50 hours for a particular exam. And that's not something you can do in a weekend. That's something you do, you know, using the repetition method over the course of weeks for your upcoming exam. And then spending that weekend comprehensively going through the plan that you created to review all the lecture notes and the slides and so on and so forth. And the fourth exam mistake that a lot of students make is, you know, not being confident enough and also having testing anxiety, which I still have and had during the MCAT, and it's just not executing on everything that you would learn. And the big thing that I recommend for students to get over this is to take their practice test under real conditions. You know, don't just do problem one on the practice exam and then look at the answer and say, oh, that's why I got it wrong and go to the next problem. But actually, you know, sit down, mimic the testing setting as much as possible, set the timer for the amount of time you'll have for the test or maybe less and take the exam as if it's the real exam. And then go over the answers thoroughly, make sure you understand what you got wrong and why you got those wrong, and also review what you got right as well to reinforce those positive principles and the things that you did get correct. A way to be more confident before taking the exam is just, frankly, to know your stuff, to put the hours in, to execute on this comprehensive study plan that you would put in, and also to make sure you know that you're studying properly and efficiently. Finally, another thing that I do frequently and that other students can do is to meditate and to learn how to meditate and add that to their study routine as well. Well, Sholi, this has been great advice and some wonderful recommendations that students can really put into place. And I think that if students incorporate so many of your suggestions, they will definitely see the results of their efforts. And I want to ask you, any final recommendations for students in their ongoing efforts to earn better grades? You know, Dr. Desai, thank you for having me, and I really appreciate the opportunity to talk on these things. When I think about a closing statement, I think about what I would want to hear four years ago, and that would really help me, you know, stay on the right path and improve. And I think I would want to hear me tell myself to never settle and to constantly, constantly be humble enough to see where I'm not doing well in things and to be able to be honest with myself and say, this is where I can improve. You know, I'm not getting the grade that I actually want in this class. Let me take a closer look and, okay, you know, this is what I can do better. Or I can meet with this teacher or I can get out of my comfort zone in this area. And I think had I heard that earlier from myself, it would have made continuing to strive for straight A's an easier process because I would have known I was on the right path. Well, Sholi, thank you again for joining us today on this episode of the Success in Medicine podcast. I would love to have you join us again in the future. I would love to be here as well, Dr. Sai. Thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to talk about my shortcomings and what I learned from them. This brings to an end our two-part podcast series with Sholi Nicholson. We wish Sholi all the best as he starts medical school at Harvard. We do encourage you to visit his website, ambitiousstudent.com, where you will find more tips and strategies for academic success. As always, don't forget to visit our website, thesuccessfulmatch.com, for more detailed advice and strategies to help you overcome the challenges on your journey to being a doctor. Until next time, I'm Dr. Samir Desai.